You are listening to Living in the End Times with Amos and X, a podcast about politics and prose, theology theory, hijinks and pranks, and the everything and nothing to come. Good evening, good Amos. E- good evening, Nick. How are you today? I'm great. How you doing? Uh, I'm okay. We're coming at uh, y'all, dear listener, on the uh, just about the last day of the year 2018. So um, 
we could maybe cover a few, you know some year in review, review sort of things if we'd like to, but I thought it might make sense given that um, some of the literature I've been reading lately was sort of um, apocalyptic in tone. I'm in the middle of uh, Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake, and there are other similar sorts of texts like that that I've been delving into, and I thought maybe you know there's films too that I've been trying to watch that cover this um, apocalyptic sort of uh, motif, and I didn't know if that was something worth discussing um, as an episode in full, uh, the film aspect in particular, maybe novels as its own episode. And uh, I know you're quite the uh, you're quite the fan of film. Yeah, it's and... uh, psychotically obsessive. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. So for, uh, before we get into that, I should ask you. I was listening to another podcast, a Brett Easton Ellis one. And he was talking. This from a year or two ago. He was talking to a Hollywood producer, and they were basically talking about you know um, what is it um, the height of television? I forget that term. Um, peak TV. And kind the, of what, the golden age. There you go. And what that's all doing to the film industry. And this guy was, again, an insider saying, film's done. At least in the United States of America, film is done. Mm-hmm. And um, so, speaking of apocalypse or sort of epoch changing stuff, what, I mean, you're a film buff. You, I mean, you share that sentiment that we're kind of, it's done for oh. as, a, as a genre or as a, I mean, a medium. Right. Absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, I think, um, so I'm a big Brady Sinellis podcast listener up until he made it a fucking paid podcast sure. which fine i respect the hustle but i also it's a severe limitation and i side with joe rogan on that where he's like you paid podcasting it's just like dead in the water um <clears throat> but there'll come a time where I'll, where I'll pay to listen to it honestly the reason i haven't paid so far is because he the first his first episode back after a roughly a year hiatus discusses the new Twin Peaks series and I haven't um I haven't had the mm. time to watch it because when I started watching it it was so relevant to my the book project I've discussed before that there was like a 40 second scene that I had to write about it took you know I had to write for an hour about just sure. like some of the visuals so um that's part of it but uh as far as the death of film like I I probably still watch very conservatively 200 movies a year probably more it's probably closer to 300 um as well as a lot of tv series and <clears throat> bretty sinnell's bemoans the fact that film's dying but he also you know s- accepts it and part of his problem is that the argument he makes is basically that uh film has more to do with tone mm-hmm. and you know ambient like that the aesthetic is what rules film Whereas with TV, it's still fundamentally a writer's medium. Sure. It's about um, still about pushing through information across the audience to keep the story moving. Uh, so that's that's a, one of the losses involved with film um, <clears throat> dying as a as po- as like the dominant form of popular art as the ideological fabric of society, mm-hmm. and not just you know American. Hollywood movies are that for the whole world. Right. So there was, a, you know, referring back to Pamela Anderson's political interventions, she did an interview with Jacobin where she was talking about how uh, so she was being interviewed by one of Zizek's contemporaries, uh, Sekro Hovrat. I'm probably butchering that. This young Croatian philosopher. 
And he was talking about during the Yugoslav wars, you know, Bosnia and everything, like the society's crumbling, but they were watching Baywatch and it was giving them hope that mm. there's some sort of utopia out there. <laughs> and Pam Anderson said, she, you know, when she's gone to the conflict zones like Haiti and Zimbabwe and stuff, people really identified with that California dream mm. of, you know, the beautiful American happy life. Uh, so <clears throat> we can't just relegate these things to some sort of, you know, uh, fantasy, pure fantasy, because like Lacan says, you know, you don't get reality without fantasy. Fantasy right. structures reality. So, <clears throat> uh, which is relevant to the, you know, topic of apocalypse and film. But I, well, so just to like, what, what I was going to, my big, my big argument against film as a dominant form now is that this year will be the first year like I don't do a top 10 list of movies. I do like a I just list probably the 50 or 100 movies that I think are worth watching and then I sort of arrange them. The first 15 is pretty close. Mm-hmm. Um but I've been I've been uh since I started doing this, I've just included entire TV seasons as uh equal to films because obviously like that's they were sharing space, but now I think if I'm I haven't done it yet, but if I look back, it's going to be most of the top ten is going to be TV sh- sure, seasons. Sure. Um, like, no, there's no film better than Sharp Ob- the HBO miniseries Sharp Objects. Like, nothing comes close to that. And that was almost true last year with the first season of The Sinner, uh, both centering around like how <clears throat> the relationship to trauma and memory and how how that shapes reality for these characters, but then also for like these cities or towns or whatever. Um, and I think there's a lot of political, uh, fertile political soil to be explored uh, in these shows. But I mean, in terms of films, I mean, what, like, what did I see? There's a Lars von Trier movie that actually made some noise called The House That Jack Built, starring Matt Dillon about the serial killer. And a VOD, video on demand, like a downloadable, pay-to-download version of it was released to the public, but there was a one-day screening in theaters on December 14th of the uncut version. And that's the version I believe he played at Cannes Film Festival, and people were walking out and booing him for it. So, we'll get to Lars von Trier later. <laughs> right. But uh, So what I'm saying is, it's not that film cannot be a provocative, socially relevant medium. It's that everything's just moved over to TV. And there's, mm-hmm. I I couldn't really tell. I think there's something moderately mysterious about it. Like the political economy side of it is during the writer's strike in Hollywood, a lot of those writers just moved to TV. And I think that was, there was, there was a sea change happening there back mm-hmm. in 2006 and seven. And that's where you saw a real significant changeover, but it worked in terms of making you know money, presumably. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to keep making these huge fucking shows. Like I think I saw Brady St. Ellis in an interview. He said the Netflix show Bloodline for three seasons it cost him like three hundred million dollars, which wow. is just I mean that's just insane. insane. So they're putting real money behind it, and at the same time, we're seeing the biggest box offices ever. Mm-hmm. You know not even year after year, month after month, just these crazy, like 
obviously the Avengers is mm-hmm. making, you know, two, three billion dollars. Transformers, Star Wars, and all that stuff. Even Venom, which is uh, sort of Sony. Sony's uh, superhero movies are are darker, more like left wing. I'd say mm-hmm. like Venom and Logan and Deadpool, and even those ones are making like I think Venom made five hundred million internationally. Wow. It was a hundred million dollar movie, so that that might come at in at like three quarters of a billion. Uh, and it's a pretty like, I mean it's it's good, it's funny and stuff, but so these these sort of like. It's not mediocre, but it's almost mediocre. And so these mediocre movies are making these huge boxes. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the, all the new Star Wars movies are disasters except for Rogue One. Right. Um, yet, you know, $2 billion, easy. And that's um, ironically, I'm sorry to interrupt, <laughs> sort of apocalyptic in, in the tone of what happens there in that film. Exactly. So, yeah. And I mean, that's why it's so good. Right. Yeah. That's that one, as we, I think, right, you know, resoundingly agree that in episode three revenge of the sith is Mm -hmm. uh, those are the two serious like left-wing star wars movies um every star trek movie is left (laughs) right but um and i'm glad you brought that up i want to get to star trek too but (laughs) yeah with the not the film but just the series oh okay i want to get to the film because japan's gonna start wailing again um (laughs) so anyway like the yeah, but the shift to TV is really – it's really f- profound in the mm-hmm. sense that I think, like, we can't – there's no way to ignore television anymore, which mm-hmm. is very strange because the the wheels are coming off of – like, traditional media can't make any money, and so mm-hmm. they're forced to explore new terrain, and it's really paying off yeah. um, paradoxically. Like, a friend mm-hmm. – like I was talking to a friend last night about how <clears throat> the strangeness of our times where the most radical left-wing media is like Forbes, Teen Vogue, GQ. Right. And that might sound strange if one's not keeping abreast of these publications, but Teen Vogue is publishing all this like, you know, ABCs to anarchism mm-hmm. and like how to how to overthrow the government practically, like uh, stuff like that. Forbes has just become total pro nuclear. Like it's almost like it's almost daily that I'm seeing new, you know, research based arguments for nuclear Mm -hmm. uh, on the grounds of climate change. And then I think I saw GQ had a feature story about like capitalism's done. Yeah. (laughs) So you know, what's heralding this is crazy because in the mainstream you have like. You want to talk? So, uh, a couple recent apocalyptic films I saw. Uh, most recently, I saw Vice, the um, Adam McKay written and directed biopic of biopic of uh, Dick Cheney, and it's extremely dark and very interestingly borrowing some Lars von Trier tropes mm-hmm. of just like the trying to, you know, it's it's. Uh, it's much darker than the big short. The big short was more of a straight comedy, but obviously there's a lot of comedic elements. I was mm-hmm. the only one laughing in the theater much of the time when Steve Carell's playing this like berserker fucking Donald Rumsfeld, just like Cheney's Cheney was kind of the straight man. They they were starting in like the late sixties when Cheney first showed up to Washington right. and uh, he was like a congressional intern and he went and, worked for Rumsfeld because he liked the cut of his jib, meaning he's just this like 
fucking cretinous scumbag. <laughs> right. um, and they're, as they sort of were working together to rise through the ranks, they ended up in the Nixon White House. Mm-hmm. And Cheney's just sort of this, like, he has this lost look. Like, he's trying to, like, sort out what's going on here. He knows he wants power because he was he was a drunk and his wife gave him an ultimatum. Like, I, she's like, I can't run a company. I can't be president. I can't do any of this stuff. You, can, That's just the way the world is back in 1963. Mm-hmm. She's like, but I know I have 12 guys and some professors at school who would date me for sure. So I, you're, did I bet on the wrong horse? Cause I, I can go right now. And so <clears throat> it was this moment of like, it, what I, what was, that was one of the, I think key f- formal features of the film was the like, and Zizek's made this point about, um, about Islam is there's an am- ambiguous relationship between like, like it's understood as a sort of brutal patriarchal, vision of reality at in the contemporary moment. But if you look at the actual texts, Muhammad was not convinced that he was seeing, uh, that he was getting a message from God. It was his wife that convinced him that it was real. Yeah. Yeah. And so for Zizek, he's like, even in, even the most fundamentalist quote unquote, and we talked about that, but the most fundamentalist readings of like the most cretinous, brutal patriarchal shit. Like when, uh, was the president of Afghanistan or the leader of the Taliban was saying something like the, with, if women get raped because they're exposed, like you can see any parts of their body. It's because it's like, you wouldn't, if you, if you put raw meat in front of a dog, what's it going to happen? Now this sounds like very terrible and like blaming the victim. And I disagree with that obviously, but uh, Zizek's point is like, his argument is grounded in the idea that men are like animals who can't be controlled and need to be like, extracted from like temptation mm-hmm. they're the problem almost civilization yeah, yeah. so it's like uh, this perverse feminist view of like uh men shouldn't even be exposed to anything that c- they're uncontrollable or whatever like that's not an argument in favor of men even though it's used to justify this horrible repressive bullshit that i oppose um there's a similar thing happening in this vice movie where amy adams character uh, Lynn Cheney, she was clearly the power behind the throne. So like, there's, mm-hmm. there's a sequence where he's running for Congress and he's just terrible in public. Like he can't, he's not folksy. He's just monotone. And he, he's doesn't like being in front of people right. and he's given his stump speech and it's not really working. And then he gets, he has a heart attack and she has to go campaign for him and he wins because of her <laughs> and, sure. he, and he credits her with that. Uh, but that's what gave him those 10 years in Congress to really, mm-hmm start you know in the 80s to do all this dark shit um wyoming right yeah Yeah. uh and i don't even think he's from wyoming but she was Mm. um so the but but my point is like and this is this is like to my this is something i'm writing about a lot uh my book project is amy adams as a as like sort of the vision of like what what feminine power looks like uh in the current moment um in sharp objects for sure uh without getting into all of it there's a lot going on in that film or that series film same thing i guess it's incredible but also in the film arrival mm-hmm. um and the alien too. have you seen that one i have yes. okay so <clears throat> For the uninitiated, Arrival is uh, 
it's based on a Chinese science fiction novella, and like this hard science fiction. Um, and the the premise is that these this alien craft shows up, or these twelve alien craft show up all across the world, in different parts of the world, and they they've been making contact the governments and military intelligence and whoever else have been making contact with these uh beings but nobody really they're not releasing what it is or what you know what's happening they're just these floating uh vehicles and <clears throat> like they look like I don't know what you even they're kind of these obelisks but they're curved on the side that they float seem to float above the ground they're mm-hmm. they're unencumbered by re, uh, by gravity uh there's no radiation coming off of them no discernible power sources, whatever. And then there's a screen or there's a glass wall separating the creatures from the humans when they encounter them. And gravity gets altered in, in the chamber of the, when they're, they're sort of lifted up and uh, they stage it well enough. So you can kind of figure out what's going on. It's hard to explain, but uh, the big problem of the film is Amy Adams is this linguist and she's brought in with this physicist to try and, sort out trying to figure out how to communicate with these beings mm-hmm. and they're like they look like what do they call them like heptapods they have like they kind of look like a combination of like an octopus and a a crab or something um and but it it's it becomes by by way of trying to learn this language she starts to be able to perceive time differently she starts to be able to see into the future and not really know that that's what's happening. She's just dreaming. Um, but it changes her relationship to time as well. Uh, she can like, it's not like she's actually transported into different moments, but Mm -hmm. she can see all of time as soon as she learns this language Mm -hmm. and which physics teaches us happens too. Right. I mean, your relationship to space and time changes depending on where you are in the universe or your relation to other large objects. Right. And so I'm just, I'm inserting that because you mentioned she's with a physicist. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, well, that's, and that's key. So I spent a lot of time reading or writing about this and thinking through like what's going on because at first it seems sort of, I feel like a little, it, it seems easy to explain, but then, over time upon further reflection, like it becomes increasingly clear that like the, what's being laid out here is a means by which we might understand how to manipulate gravity and therefore going along with that view of quantum physics, um, that if gravity is, so okay this is not the theory of the film per se but one theory of quantum physics is that gravity is not fundamental gravity is an effect of other forces that we either can't perceive directly or uh we just haven't we haven't we don't have the topology or the, we haven't figured it out yet mathematically if this is true and gravity is malleable it's something that we can um get hold of then that changes our relationship to time, space, time, all of that sort of thing. And so the, but by altering the temporality of like what we're talking about, altering the understanding of time, we gain access to this different uh, engagement with reality. And this is where it gets interesting because at the end of the film, 
um, at the end of chronologically, the end of the film, she engages with the Chinese um, P- prime minister or whatever premier in a party in the future when they've already solved the problem because there becomes this war games that start to play out mm-hmm. and it, they threaten to like blow each other up out of fear or attack the aliens just because they don't know what's happening. Um, so Amy Adams in her mind remembers the future where she has this conversation where she's talking to the Chinese premier and he tells her something that she wouldn't be able to know otherwise. Right. So then in the present moment, she calls him and says whatever phrase to him in Mandarin, which then de-escalates the situation. Mm-hmm. Now here's the, here's where it gets weird. <laughs> if that's not weird, here's where it gets weird. The question is, did she know it already or was the future like was he also able to engage after the fact after she was able to translate and teach humanity this universal language mm-hmm. he could then from the future from you know because he was able to see backwards give her this information right. as a result of this you know what, what constitutes um contingency what constitutes uh, what what's malleable or not temporality? Yeah, so itself, like yeah. he's manipulating the timelines after the fact, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so one of the big questions about the film, what Zizek raises is why did or he's he was um, he was on forums where they're discussing the implications of the film, and people were raising the question why why do the aliens need us if they can already do this? What do they need from us? Because there's a moment in the film where the Aliens are like, we're going to need your help in 3,000 years. So that's why we're intervening now so you don't destroy yourselves or whatever. Sure. And the the theory that people have come up with is that the way that we are able to abstract, uh, the way we're able to think abstractly, they can't. So mm-hmm. they can, uh, like when the physicists would try to introduce mathematical concepts, they didn't understand any of the algebra or anything like that. They understood some of the really high-level stuff, but like, a lot of the basic symbolic logic they couldn't it just mm-hmm. didn't work in their consciousness so they themselves could see that we had something that they needed to uh ex- you know they they needed from us um but my interest in the film politically a lot of it has to do with if we're to understand one of the pretenses of the film is that we need to under- be able to start to understand contingency in terms of the way quantum physics talks about how reality breaks. Mm-hmm. So uh, without getting into all of it, I mean, the basic kind of, you know, 101 quantum physics is that w- w- through a series of like weird experiments, you can prove that like the status of the observer affects what happens and that time that you can have multiplicities of events, but they collapse into what we find our the reality we find ourselves in as a result of contingent factors. Mm-hmm. When I say observer, I don't mean the hard part about understanding that, and I didn't understand it till recently, is when we talk about an observer or a measurement, that does not have to do with a subjective human consciousness looking at something per se a machine can be an observer and then affect just by way of observation or measurement the outcome of events so what the film the 
the Herculean task of the film is to try and establish all of this as a means to understand that subjectivity affects the future at a physical level and without diving into hippiedom and woo about like we're all consciousness and all this bullshit. Um, and then like increasingly they're, they're looking for evidence that consciousness itself is in human, in the human mind has to do with quantum oscillations that are happening in the human brain uh, on, on this substrate such that, the brain can create shapes <clears throat> in 11 dimensions. And so there's a lot to say. I could talk probably for three hours about this, but um, what, what the, the conclusion the film draws is that once we start speaking this new language, it changes not only our consciousness, but also reality itself. Right. Yeah. And so as far as apocalypse goes, I mean, that's as apocalyptic as it can get, mm -hmm. but it's also as revolutionary as you can get all the way down. The idea is that reality itself is truly up for grabs. And if we have the right tools and, you know, uh, language, in this case, formal abstractions, mm -hmm. we can move beyond uh, this, this reality into new reality. And I think, like, again, that might sound woo-like, but, you know, without digital computers, we don't have the same interaction with each other that we would otherwise, for better mm -hmm. or worse. So we're changing reality all the time. The question is, how far can it go? And just recently, they're alleging that they've discovered a black hole that if we pass through it, we can time travel backwards and play out infinite timelines, infinite different timelines. So these things are not set in stone. They're, they're opening up. They're, the end of an epoch is we're in it in many different, in many different levels. And I think Arrival's among the most significant versions of this that mm -hmm. to consolidate all this into one. Right. No, that's, <clears throat> so you wanted to say more, I think about Amy Adams as a, as a central figure, but I, I, I mean, I agree with you on that, that film. Um, I mean, and it's sort of import rather. And I've been thinking about it for a while myself. Um, and I mean, to your point, wondering if, the ways in, I mean, these problems we've discussed on this show, whether it's totalitarianism that we s appear to see on the rise or climate change, which we know is happening and so on. If there isn't a way to solve these just by talking about them in different ways, using a new language, et cetera. And it's not like science necessarily will save us or our politics will save us um, unless, right. I mean, we just talk about politics differently, et cetera. So, and that film shows, shows, I mean, demonstrates a way in which that might be possible. Yeah. And I, <clears throat> um, yeah, I would have to get into, I'd have to like extrapolate about sharp objects and mm -hmm. um, maybe we'll save that for another show because I, I would want to talk about some other things there. But <clears throat> to kind of maybe shift slightly to um, another apocalyptic movie I've seen recently is uh, Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 11.9. So the it, it's... Michael Moore movies are always sort of mixed bag. On one hand, for me, like aesthetically, a lot of time, all his movies make me cry. He just knows how to push those buttons and, you know, for better or worse, that's sure. fine. That's right. Um, you know, maybe it's just like he's a good craftsman or a good manipulator or whatever. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't really care. It's, it's, it works. Uh, this one, though, is probably the darkest one. And which is a little, it's strange to say that. Because the the idea isn't that Trump 
is all powerful. Yeah. So Fahrenheit, the premise is Fahrenheit eleven nine is the day after Trump was elected. Mm-hmm. So this is our you know new nine eleven sort of haha. Um, <clears throat> but like one, so he he makes <laughs> he makes an effort to talk about how Trump got into this in the first place. So the story goes that Gwen Stefani was Trump found out that Gwen Stefani was making more money on the voice than he was making on the apprentice on NBC and he couldn't stand for it. So as a ploy to uh, try to get paid more, he staged a fake rally with paid uh, actors, 50 bucks a head cheering him on and announced he was going to run for the pre- for president. But when he was making the, and this, so this was a joke. I mean, mm-hmm. he, it was a joke that he was trying to like run through. So hopefully it would function as leverage with NBC. But unfortunately, since he hadn't, of course, prepared any speech, he just started ra- rattling off all this crazy shit and was talking about Mexicans and he pissed everybody off. So NBC, not only did they not give him a raise, they fired him. Mm-hmm. And so he's fucked now because he has no job and he's, you know, probably bankrupt or close to it. Right. Uh, so he's going to quit because it didn't work. The gambit failed, but his sons convinced him he had he had scheduled two more rallies, and his sons convinced him to just just do the other two rallies and see what happens. And he shows up in Mobile, Alabama, and there's twenty thousand fucking people there screaming, cheering him on, and he realizes that he's tapped into something by accident. Job, just yeah, he's found a new job, but he's found like he's he's. Like he's captured America's heart somehow, mm-hmm. uh, dark heart. Let's say, right. uh, and so he he just runs with it, and it worked. And then they Michael Moore showed, and I can attest to this because I remember watching it. The night Trump won, <laughs> he he gets up on stage and he just looks. He looks like he's been shot. Like it's the most defeated I've ever seen him. Uh, clearly didn't want the job and clearly was not expecting mm-hmm. to get it. Um, and Michael Moore is pointing out how everybody, even like in his family, like they all looked just traumatized. Like what the fuck happened? Uh, just as traumatized as maybe the rest of us to whatever degree it for better, you know, maybe some, you know, traumas can also be positive. I guess mm-hmm. people are into it. Uh, <clears throat> and so th- that was, that was, you know, it was literally like we said, I was joke with people I'm close to, like privately, it's just a prank, bro. You know, like it's just a really effective prank, mm-hmm. but it, it was, mm-hmm. it literally was, and it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've talked about, I think I mentioned this in earlier episodes, like there's, there's that sense of like, you know, whatever, however we define a prank, but I, to me, I mean. I mean, it's sort of tongue in cheek, but I also mean it like, ah, let's let's throw some shit at the wall and see what happens. It's kind of like this show. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Um, But I, you know, the Russian Revolution was like sort of Mm. a prank in that sense. Like uh, Zizek wrote about how Trotsky was like, you don't need a standing army. Just give me a thousand people who who are engineers and some troops, and we'll take over the whole bureaucratic apparatus. And that's how they ultimately came to power you know by seizing the moment but it's like that's that's a weird stupid gambit that shouldn't work but you know then it changes world history right and they weren't expecting the opportunity um 
months before, you know, three months before Lenin said, maybe your grandkids will have a chance at revolution. So like things can change very, very rapidly. And so that open fluidity, let's just call it a militant fluidity can work in one's favor if they're really willing to go for it. Um, and the the reason that the Michael Moore movie is apocalyptic is not so much because of Trump. Like his, the, the movie's been very unpopular and didn't make any money. And the reason is because he's blaming the Democrats mm-hmm. as much as anybody else for fucking the country into a state where as Trump he is should. palatable. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but the example, he's always using Flint, Michigan as his test case for, you know, just where the country's at. And so he's talking about the water crisis. Now, this mm-hmm. this part I didn't know. I knew that Michigan had been taken over by corporations, by RIT. So the, these these uh, emergency managers, quote unquote, they declared the governor declared a state of emergency. This corrupt governor, and then handed over control of black the black cities to emergency managers, who then were not rep- responsive to any democratic will and could literally do whatever they wanted. So traditionally, Flint's water supply came from Lake Huron. You know, it's a it's whatever one of the Great Lakes glacial lake. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a direct line with, and it was all it was working fine, no water problems, none of that. They were decided some of these corporate managers decided to cash in, so they started giving contracts to build a new pipeline from the Flint River or whatever the river's called. I think it's mm-hmm. called the Flint River. Um, which is just a toxic waste slurry from like all this industrial mm-hmm. like car production. And they just, f- so th- they didn't, it's not that the pipes that they had went bad. Those are fine. They built new pipes to pump poison into children. Then this is where it gets dark. The water was so bad. The city water was so bad that it was started rusting the auto parts that they were washing it in, in the mm-hmm. plant. So they got an exception was made for GM's plants. They could use the Huron water, but the citizens couldn't, mm-hmm. even though they knew there was lead poisoning and they knew that people were getting sick. And then they were they were telling the county health people to fake results showing literally going in to test their kids for lead, telling them they didn't have lead exposure when they did. Mm-hmm. And lead poisoning is permanent brain damage. Right. Neurological stuff. Yeah. Total nightmare. Um and then, you know, the film goes on from there to just like, I mean, that to me, that's just like the darkest heart. Like, well, you can't justify that with any sort of humanity or whatever. There were people who were in the hospital and contracted Legionnaire's disease in the hospital. From, I mean, from the conditions there. Yeah, the just water. from the water. Yeah. So, like, I mean, how are we not? It's like my friend said a few years ago. When he found out that Mitt Romney, he pays more taxes than Mitt Romney. He's like, why aren't we dragging these people out in the street mm-hmm. and, you know, et cetera? Why not? I mean, that's what it'll, I mean, that's what it'll come to. Literally overthrowing these, these, you know, we were talking about neo-feudalism. Here mm-hmm. it is. Literally they're feudal, the kings, lords, whatever, not responsive to anybody but themselves. Um, the fact that they built a pipeline just to poison people. I mean, it's one thing when you say, well, we're building this oil pipeline to energy blah. No, they, they, they took something clean and safe, and then they built a monstrous version of it to kill black children or, you know, permanently fuck them up. 
And this is like, this is the whole plan just so mm-hmm. they could make money on the contracting. Mm-hmm. You could have built a viaduct to nothing and made the same amount of money, but no, mm-hmm. this is how, this is, this is what's allowed to go on mm-hmm. in this country. So, I mean, I, I almost can't find something more apocalyptic than, than that. And that's a documentary. Yeah. So to get to the, uh, and I haven't seen that, I should say, and I'm very interested in that that film now, but I should um, bring it back to what my initial question, I think, was apropos the topic, which is we've seen a number of, I mean, we're defining apocalypse in film broadly, and that's I think that's good, that's how it should be, but we've seen a number of films that could fall under that definition um, of late. And um, I guess I wanted to get your sense, too, of having seen many of these films, maybe most of them, or, or the genres of films, uh, for example, all the zombie stuff we see on television and film, World War Z, Shaun of the Dead, etc., 28 days later, um, which of these sort of visions of apocalypse, um, these certain um, articulations um, seem to have kind of hit the nail on the head the best, right? right? And I know you and I have talked about, I don't know if the zombie ones are interesting or not uh, to discuss as a, as a category, but um, something like uh, the Cormac McCarthy f- uh, novel, the film version of which uh, which Viggo Mortensen's in called The Road, uh, there's Children of Men, and uh, there's a few others that sort of maybe fit the bill as sort of feeling a little more realistic or possible now than, say, you know, World War Z or something. Right. And I didn't know if, you, if there are particular films in a short amount of time here we have that you think are worth fo- uh, focusing on. Right. Well, um, yeah, I mean, uh, as I'd mentioned to you before, like, <clears throat> before the podcast, before we started recording, since you had mentioned how Children of Men is kind of coming true, I I rewatched it because I was thinking about it, and what I what was striking about it was that it's um, there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of subtle things things in 2006 when it came out that I didn't I didn't understand why it would play out that way. It seemed it was convincing, but I right. just didn't I didn't understand the apparently the political terrain terrain enough to see coming as well as um was it Quaron? Yeah, Alfonso Quaron. Yeah. Yeah. Uh was able to and interestingly he drew a lot of uh the ideas from Zizek's work. So sure. there's uh, there's that element. And I hadn't been exposed to Zizek at that point. Um but like for instance the the immigration like the mm-hmm. refugee camps and all that stuff. Right. I didn't see how that would I didn't perceive, and maybe it was just because, like, it really wasn't on the table back then in the way it is now. I didn't see how that was going to be the defining feature of Europe and the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, that that was going to be the means by which authoritarian power asserted itself, mm-hmm. the justification, the excuse, and et cetera, even though, you know, that was five years after 9-11, and that was still very fresh in right. people's uh, mine and uh, in just the society, but even so, the the immigration push wasn't happening, right? And I should, I'm sorry to interrupt. I should clarify the and again for the, the uninitiated, just very quickly the plot there. It's it's sort of a, a sort of a reverse apocalypse. It's not everyone blows up. It's just that human beings stop having children, right? We can't right. have babies anymore, mm-hmm. and so they celebrate the youngest person, and it's a tragedy when that youngest person dies, and so on. And it's actually then a refugee woman who actually ends up pregnant, right? right. In some sort of, um, you know. Judeo-Christian sort of stuff going on too, but no father, et cetera, et cetera. But. Right. The new hope is being born out of the slums. Right. Um, and <clears throat> yeah, sorry, I didn't uh, 
So it opens on, I'll just briefly describe kind of what happens. The film opens on Clive Owen in 2027 uh, getting coffee, and the, the youngest person in the world had just been shot in mm-hmm. Buenos Aires. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> he doesn't care. He's on he's untouched by this. He, he's just getting coffee and then he walks outside and then a bomb goes off. Mm-hmm. Um, in the cafe he was just in. He, yeah, I think so. Um, so <clears throat> that was just packed with people watching TV or watching the, this news. And the, the world is, you know, as a result of infertility for 18 years, the world has sort of collapsed in terms mm-hmm. of meaning and there it's showing, you know, like, this montage of like cities that are falling mm-hmm. um, to violence and riots and everything else. Religious zealotry. And- yeah. And uh, so, <clears throat> and Zizek has some commentary about the film that was in the special features where he's talking about how, like what's a few like really genius things that Quaron did was he, you can't, he, he the, the foreground of the film is Clive Owen's, this story where his ex ex wife um, gets him kidnapped because she's involved with these political left wing radicals who mm-hmm. um, want him to contact his minister brother or something who or cousin who can get transit papers for this immigrant girl and they don't give him any detail uh, about what it is but they're gonna pay him and he's like an alcoholic who just doesn't give a shit about anything really Mm -hmm. um and he's got this buddy who's this old hippie guy he's kind of ridiculous very which zizek said this is a genius move to change it to this guy because we all know somebody like this um Mm -hmm. probably and who ends up helping out a lot and like they're so that that's the foreground the background is all the social collapse you're seeing all these like just this riotous uh, repression and just crumbling everything. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, all that all these like weird religious sects that are just popping up as response to this collapse of society. Um, and the, they have to pass through this refugee camp in order, like that's their way into their way in and their way out of, um, where this woman needs to be because the country is presumably sectioned off, quarantined, whatever. And then while they're in the refugee camp, he finds out, or right before it, they're, they're poli- the political sect, it gets revealed that this girl's pregnant and they want to use her as like a political tool. And mm-hmm. he's against it after his ex-wife gets killed in some seemingly random attack. We find out later it was intentional. She was being tar- They were all being targeted except the girl because they just want to get rid of the, any loose ends. Um, that was another thing I, I didn't, I didn't understand at the time is how these left-wing radicals could become so viciously opportunistic and authoritarian mm-hmm. because that was something that was never discussed in my experience with, with those circles or just like in the, even in literature about it. Um, but I be, I've since in the subsequent decade have seen that play out a lot. And I'm not talking about this sort of right wing response to Antifa. I'm talking about how easy it is to use pretenses of non hierarchical organizing to play the most brutal power mm-hmm. games. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could even imagine sometimes. 
and how easily that could slip into just like not giving a shit about what the costs are to just do whatever you want. Um, or what the cause itself is. Right. Yeah. Or even knowing what it is mm-hmm. and, and opportunistically having these fake causes in times of crisis, mm-hmm. uh, again, as a means to just do whatever the fuck you want. So <clears throat> the, but the thing that struck me most, I won't go through the whole rest of the plot, but the thing that struck me most about when you had said it's coming true is that was even truer than I thought when you first said it. But more importantly, it doesn't, we're actually in a much worse situation mm-hmm. because that film doesn't even touch on climate change. Right. That film does not. I mean, there's sort of like a hint at some militarism and stuff mm-hmm. uh, because the army goes in and it, there's an uprising in the refugee camp, a violent uprising. And then the, the, uh, the government comes, the military state, the state military comes in and starts like bombing and, uh, you know, fighting a ground war, all this stuff looks like basically it looks like Syria, you know, looks mm-hmm. like Damascus or something, mm-hmm. even though it's in England. Uh, but the, that was what was shocking. It's like, Oh, we're really, we're fucked way worse than this because of climate change. That was something that it hadn't even like, it hadn't occurred to me at all, which is, it's kind of blindsided by it. Um, so it, it's almost like it hits the nail on the head, but it doesn't go far enough. I, that and that I don't know if that's the best example of like getting it right. I think um, to kind of tie the, the the question of zombie films. Like I'm not into. I don't really like horror movies that much. They have to be pretty specifically well done. Uh, the best example of a zombie film I could give as a left wing one is one no one has seen. George Romero's Land of the Dead from mm-hmm. 2006, same year okay. I think. Um, there's a really amazing. It's like, and I, you know, I haven't read any of, I haven't read interviews with Romero, so I don't know what he was influenced by, but it was almost like, so the zombies are this underclass and they're, they're enslaved by Mm. capitalists basically. And then you have these bourgeois zombies who are sort of just like, again, playing along. Uh, And then you have these, this band of misfits who are not zombies who have to kind of like, they have their own sort of society that's like contained within like kind of a compound, but they have to go in and out. They're, they're sort of like merchants. It's, it's probably inspired by the, the commune in they live to a degree. Um, but there's, there's like a, there's a zombie leader who of the proletarian zombies, the slave zombies who's black, who starts by, by way of just, contingency i think starts to i can't remember the whole plot but starts to realize what's happening that they're being controlled externally and starts to raise consciousness among other zombies and then there's this amazing moment where the misfit sort of radical leader guy and the zombie leader guy have this moment of mutual recognition wherein um they sort of understand that they're in the same struggle Mm. Even and it so this break with ideology is really amazing to watch. Um, and then I think they stage an uprising, but it it felt to me a lot like the the stuff that's been the the work that's been done talking about Haiti, the relationship between the Haitian Revolution and the French Revolution, um, just that mutual recognition of like having the same struggle. So <clears throat> I think like that that's my kind of go to zombie movie. There's another one that Zizek talks about a lot, that was a pre-Hays Code movie in 1932 called White Zombie. Oh, wow. It's on Netflix. Um, 
and Zizek points out why, like, it would have never passed the censors because you have these, I think they're in Haiti, and they have, like, these sugarcane workers who are zombified. They're in the, in that, so, like, all right, so there's, there's, there's a sort of, like, infectious zombie movie, like, um, uh, I Am Legend or something, mm-hmm. uh, but there's another version of zombies that's, like, related to voodoo or hoodoo, where you basically, like, a witch doctor or someone uses medicines or whatever and psychedelics and uh, basically takes over somebody's mind and then they can control them externally. And that's what's going on in this film is they're using these zombies to work in the sugar factory. Mm -hmm. And at one point there's this big like cistern grinder thing for the sugar cane and one of the slaves falls in and nobody even notices or does anything about it. Uh, So it's this big like Mm anti-capitalist movie. Um, but you know, obviously they're not make, they're not make, even land of the dead doesn't go, well, it maybe goes that far, but like, again, nobody saw it, it just gets buried. Um, so I think that side of it, like is, is worth exploring and, <clears throat> um, world war C is, <laughs> for example, I mean, just take like what I think is a kind of a bad zombie movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty rough watching the in some ways like i don't know exactly what they're aiming at but like i think there's a scene where they're in israel and the zombies are climbing the wall and like it's just like sometimes it gets ambiguous like are they pro-palestinian or are they anti-palestinian uh who's who's perceived as the enemy who isn't and maybe it's like unintentionally more ambiguous in a productive way than they intended it to be um, I like Zizek's claim is that like zombies are proletarians and vampires are bourgeois. Um, and his, and so he talks about how like you have, you have Abe Lincoln, you have that movie Lincoln come mm-hmm. out the same year as Abe Lincoln, vampire hunter. Right. And so he says vampire hunter one's the really radical one, mm-hmm. which I agree with. Um, <laughs> and there's this, the the cat or raccoon is <laughs> is exploring our uh, our production setup here, so slightly distracted <laughs> in a good way. Um, uh oh. So, <clears throat> um, the yeah, I I don't I like Zombieland. I like some zombie movies, mm-hmm. but yeah, I don't I don't think they're apocalyptic enough. Sure. No, I I uh, guess is yeah. what I would say. I was going to say it. Um, the fact that they're everywhere and have certainly been a cash cow for George Romero from whatever 1968 was Night of the Living Dead. That the, one was good. The yeah. dawn of neoliberalism with the Day of the Dead, right? Where they're in the shopping mall. Oh yeah. And then you know that you mentioned Land of the Dead. There's a, so I mean a series of different films from that one filmmaker and the genre itself. I mean, it's, you can almost use it to any purpose, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, and as right. such, I would argue maybe that makes it almost not as effectual or, or yeah. useful as it as other films like a children of men or something. Right. Um, but they're certainly popular and we could, we could continue to talk about that or another question I want to eventually get to. I should talk to the microphone. A question I want to get to is I'm thinking about the popularity of these films and apocalyptic movies generally, um, what what does that tell us about where, mm-hmm. not Hollywood itself, but just the the human sort of unconscious is, is at right now? I right. mean, if we're expecting this sort of thing and can't even 
I have just accepted it, if you will. Yeah. So, um, so there's this Mark Fisher. Oh, no, sorry. Refer, no, no, no. Oh, yeah. There's this Mark Fisher quote that Zizek misattributed to Frederick Jameson that's been bandied about for about a decade, which is that <clears throat> where we're at now ideologically is mm-hmm. it's easier to it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Right. Uh, <clears throat> and so I think that's a that's kind of fundamentally like probably what's going on. But at the same time, like there's there's no shortage in hollywood of examples of like any extreme in terms of like authoritarianism or just ecological collapse even though those ones have tended to be more silly like, like two, 20, 2012 yeah. or uh, the day a- uh, day after tomorrow or whatever sure oh there's storms everywhere like i don't think that's <laughs> No, no, it's not really where we're headed. Right. Um, it's probably going to be uglier and more brutal and shorter lived than that. But um, <clears throat> I think, like, I was trying to, I downloaded Armageddon just to find sure. the worst fucking one that I could. <laughs> the Asteroid Hitting the Earth movie with Steve Buscemi and Bruce And Willis. then they're, like, putting nukes on the asteroid. Right, and, right. like, it's just about this. It, it's just, like... It's probably so horrible that I'm. Yeah. There might be something going on. Michael there. Bay, right? If yeah, I'm not mistaken. I think so. And I should yeah. say before you go into your analysis or, or criticism, which I don't, I think it is you know, <laughs> necessary. That I saw that in the theater and it kind of made me cry, right. and um, for the reasons that it's supposed to, as a sort of spectacle, right? Anyway, is that be- why? Because Ben Affleck didn't die, or did? Uh, d- did or whatever. It was Bruce Willis like sacrificed himself, right, for oh, yeah, his right. family, and I was like, oh man, you know. Yeah, I don't. know. In that sort of, uh, it was a moment of weakness. It was. But... It was 1996. <laughs> That's right, or whatever. Yeah, four. I don't know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think it's like. Well, again, like I should maybe preface some of this by saying, well, a little late, but. Uh, my, I probably said this before, but my view on film is, uh, along the lines of the film critic, Pauline Kael, who says, if we can't, films are so rarely great art that if we can't appreciate great trash, we have no business concerning ourselves with it, which is, I totally am with that. I think, uh, you know, what's like quote unquote trash a lot of times is much more interesting, uh, formally philosophically, sometimes radical. Yeah. yeah, Then, uh, a lot of the quote unquote more serious movies so i to me it's all equal it's just whether or not it does anything for me um as a starting point uh the, the okay so take some more uh a couple more 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 contemporary ones uh that are interesting to me probably the two best ones recently are melancholia lars von trier and uh, take shelter which is i think that's Mike Nichols. Um, So I'll talk about Take Shelter first. Take Shelter is about Michael Shannon plays this working class guy. I think he runs machinery at like a gravel pit. Um, And he's married to Jessica Chastain. They have a daughter who I believe is deaf. And he starts getting, he starts getting visions of these sort of apocalyptic visions to the um to the point where like their nightmares are turning into like it's affecting him when he's awake like he f- he's having such strong feelings that he people start basically like there's this there's a rain that comes this storm comes and in in each of the different dreams and 
it starts raining what looks like it has a consistency of texture and color of motor oil. And once that starts, then people start turning on him like they want to kill him. And so first it's like the dog and he gets bit by the dog in the dream. But then the next day he wakes up and he's got this like the pain is as though it really happened. Mm -hmm. Like he has physical symptoms of it. And so he he builds a dog, a doghouse, and makes it sleep outside because he doesn't trust the dog anymore. And then this happens with people in his life who he starts cutting out. And then he starts building a storm shelter uh, that he, he, he illegally borrows equipment from work for and then gets fired and had taken out this huge loan for money they don't have to put, you know, shipping containers in the ground and all this stuff. But he persists because he doesn't know what else to do but eventually he thinks him he himself thinks he's crazy so he goes in and tries to get checked out but they're not able to really they think he might you know because he has a family history of it but he goes to talk to his mother about like his family history and she the things he's experiencing are not the symptoms that his the mental illness in his family resulted in so he doesn't know what to do Mm eventually his wife attacks him in the dream and then she's she that's when she gets freaked out because she's like i don't care about the money and the job and all that shit i just but this between us like this whatever this is you're being afraid of me that doesn't work so we have Mm -hmm. to figure that out you have to decide if you trust me or not and so as this is going on his best friend is like worried about him and he's like what the fuck you know like it's shay wingham if you know that is so he's a pretty like potent actor he uh who can get pretty volatile. And so he's, you know, he's more forceful in his rebukes and he, but, uh, Michael Shannon had kind of fucked him over previously. Mm-hmm. So they, it ruined their friendship. And then they go to this public quasi, it's a small town, rural, not clear where it is. Probably it's supposed to look like the Midwest somewhere, maybe Iowa, let's say. And they go to like some church luncheon thing, uh, fish fry, and he's trying to act normal, but again, he doesn't know what's going on. And then Shea Wingham kind of gets in his face, and he, f- Michael Shannon loses it. And then there's this amazing scene where he's just like throwing tables, and he's like, "There's a storm coming. You don't. You're all gonna fucking die." Like, you know, and I'm not gonna try to impersonate Michael Shannon because I don't want to scare any children upstairs. But like, just this vi- the violence of his certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, ripping at reality itself i mean it's very it's one of the better scenes i've seen in a long time um and i think those of us who know what's coming and have known for a long time i feel like can emotionally relate to that sort of i I, like outrage at what's happening not so not so much outrage at people but outrage at the situation and Mm -hmm. what what is to be done um I don't know if I should ruin the end of the movie. Eh, fuck it. No, I won't do it. But uh, let's just say that it 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 gets interesting in terms of like how they resolve. You know, is he crazy or not? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a real question. Mm-hmm. And so that's what the movie's about more than anything. Um, that's the question I think that's that we're facing. Those of us who've been right for a long time. You know, now what do we? How do we proceed? And now that other people, like the general population is coming around. Um, so that one was really interesting. Melancholia is a Lars von Trier film who, uh, about this wedding 
on this huge, like what appears to be like a British estate, but the people are American. So it's a little confusing. Um, and there's a, they find that there's, okay. So one of the, <clears throat> it's, it's based on this theory that it's possible that there's another earth on the other side of the sun from us all the time. And it's sort of in sync with us. So we could never, we've never been able to observe it with any telescopes or anything, but it, it ends up getting out of that orbit and coming toward us. And so the question is, is it going to hit the earth and just kill everything or not? Um, and so that's what they're over this course of this weekend when they're trying to like sort out that sort of thing. Kirsten Dunst is sort of the heroine, but it's like this dark heroine because she, she gets married, but then she doesn't care anymore. And it's, mm -hmm. it's the suggestion is that she has these spells in the past and that it's sort of a, I don't know if she's bipolar or just depression or something. Yeah. yeah. Something. Um, but as Zizek says, he's like, I like her because she's like her point kind of is like, if we're all going to die, like that humanity has got to come in basically that there's nothing worth saving here. And he's like, this is kind of how, where I land. <laughs> um, and so it, it's interesting to see like, and so that movie's more about like, uh, so it's called melancholia obviously for relating to Kirsten Dunst's character, but also I think that's the name of the, that's what they're calling the second earth mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, but obviously it's, you know, they're, they're like without getting into the cheapest symbology of, you know, what it's supposed to represent. Yeah, I, even Freudians. <laughs> yeah. I think what's fascinating or whatever about it is it's, it's trying, it's staging like how do our people respond? So if take shelters about, whether or not one is crazy knowing what's coming and no one else seems to believe it. If the ideology says, no, it's, we're fine, but we know it's true. How do we relate to that? Mm. Melancholia is like with the looming prospect of the reality of our impending doom, potentially, we're not sure if it's happening or not yet. What, what sort of, that's not, so, not necessarily even gr process of grief, but just how does one respond to, a force that we can't intervene mm -hmm. on. Um, and how do people's defenses, you know, like Kiefer Sutherland plays her uh, brother-in-law who's owns the estate and it has all the money. And he's sort of just super confident that it's going to be fine and believes all the experts and stuff. But then when the shit gets, hits the fan and he realizes it's not true, he just runs away. Like he, he just, hightails it away from his family away from every you know for, for to what end it's like who knows because he obviously he can't hide from the the planet hitting the earth um and i and so in some sense i feel like that's we're we're entering that moment of if if now that people kind of starting to believe that this is coming uh in terms of climate change whether or not we can I think people feel like they can't do anything about it. And so that's where the melancholia as such comes from. Um, how do we relate to this? How do we continue living our lives with this looming disaster? That's just like coming. Like uh, I think to that end, like no country for old men has a very apocalyptic tone in, yeah. in terms of some of the, the stuff toward the end where, uh, Tommy Lee Jones is talking to that old ex sheriff guy yeah. in his trailer. I think it's his uncle or something. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, because he's talking about his dad and right. stuff. Um, and he's like, it, Tommy Lee Jones is like, 
he's trying to reckon how like the as the cartel so this is set i think in the 80s in mm-hmm. i think it's exactly 1980 yeah in texas and also based on a cormac mccarthy novel right um he's trying to at that point in the film like reckon with how dark the world is becoming and mm-hmm. how the old way seems to be falling apart and his uncle's like telling him these stories of when indians and this is his term in the film uh were you know just just this brutality of the range wars and stuff like that mm-hmm. and he's like this isn't anything new mm-hmm. um which is it's, i think probably intentionally unconvincing i mean it, it's convincing to a degree but but his more fundamental point is like he's like you can't stop what's coming right. and then there's that the 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 reason I I'd said this last episode I think uh, the reason that's the best Coen Brothers movie for me and the the reason I went to see it in the theater three times is because the last scene when Tommy Lee Jones is describing his dream something his wife, about yeah. that just shattered me mm-hmm. like I it was like getting shot mm-hmm. um he's talking about he so his dad right yeah so yeah. he's he's retired at that mm-hmm. point and his wife's like trying to cajole him into opening up because she doesn't she's not gonna sit there and live in silence she's not it's not an ultimatum but she's just like come on motherfucker like you gotta you gotta talk to me about what happened you know about what's going on with you and stuff and so one of them he describes two dreams the first one's short and i don't remember something about Mm -hmm. his dad gives him money and then the second one they're riding on horseback and he's like they they were carrying fire in the old way like in a horn Mm -hmm. Referring now, when he says the old way, that refers to Paleolithic methods of keeping fire by using uh, the certain kind of mushroom that could stay burning. The embers could stay burning in a vestibule or whatever, whatever you call it, a container for a while, and they'd use an old horn or whatever. And it was just something about how he was like, he's like he rode on ahead, but he was keep, he was keeping the light. I was going to say he was ahead of his dad. He yeah. passed his dad, and he was like he was keeping the light alive or something. And it was like, to me, that was far, far and away more apocalyptic than anything that happened in the road. Mm-hmm. Um, even in the novel mm-hmm. or the, the novel is stronger than that. The film, the road, mm-hmm. but that moment in no country was just like, that was the apocalypse. Like the, the whole, their whole way of being mm-hmm. had collapsed. And there's a scene where there, he's talking to another law enforcement guy after, some murder he's trying to figure out or whatever with a psychopath he's tracking and the they're talking about how like they can't understand the brutality they don't even know where it comes from and the guy says he's like i think as soon as people stop saying ma'am and sir like you're headed like it's over Mm -hmm. um and I, I don't think this should be read. This is the hard part, and this is the genius of the Coen brothers. It should not be, and Cormac McCarthy, this should not be read as an argument for conservatism. Right. It's quite the opposite. It appears that way. Yeah, I agree. It yeah. sounds like that, and these are cops and stuff, but it's it's clear that, like, like, he refers to before, you know, decades earlier, there were sheriffs who wouldn't even carry a gun. Mm-hmm. And people can't even believe that now. Like, they were understood as shepherds rather mm-hmm. than, you know, um, agents of the state, I right. guess. <clears throat> uh, which is, you know, and that's the sort of specific thing about sheriffs, too, is that they're elected. Uh, right. But 
so it, but in that way like the reason i say it's not conservative is i don't think they're pissed off that like patriarchy's dying or something they're they're terrified of what happens when the social fabric is destroyed and mm-hmm. they can't even like some new uh regime uh, you know is is forming and they don't they don't even understand the motivations because it's not about racism mm-hmm. and which is another like genius like carefully constructed theme like they know they're everyone's involved with these cartels it's not just mexicans they right. don't care that they're mexican woody harrelson right yeah and so you have this like emergence of this corporate uh just this organized crime on a scale that like we can barely conceive of and Mm -hmm. we've seen now like after the fact hsbc and these huge banks were laundering money for these drug cartels so the the drug cartels are completely folded into this new version of capitalism Mm -hmm. so this neoliberal neo-feudalism is leaving these sort of modern these are figures of modernity i think like tommy lee jones's character like an actual detective a lawman who's uh, you know attempting to kind of shepherd the flock um he knows his time that time has passed mm-hmm. um and it's not nostalgic it's just what is coming after this right. and so that's the so that would be the third movement here so the first movement is we know what's coming. No one believes us. The second movement is we all know it's here. How do we deal with that? And then the last one, what happens after the fact? Right. Where, how are we? Le- in what wasteland are we left? Right. Ethically, morally, politically, um, as as things unravel, both in terms of like the economic system is dying and the the earth is dying. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> if if apocalyptic thinking or apocalyptic film has something to tell us. I think it has something to tell us there in the sense of opening up these questions much more mm-hmm. than just, you know, telling us how to, how to relate to it. Cause who, who could know? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, <laughs> these are, these are obviously very dark topics, but like we have to figure out how to reckon this if we're going to figure out how to move forward. Right. And I don't, I mean, No Country for Old Men in particular, you're right, it asks that question. And without giving too much away, it doesn't It doesn't give you an answer, right? And Tommy right. Lee Jones doesn't have it. He's like, no. then I woke up, right? Yeah. And we don't know We don't know what happens next. And right. he, he doesn't have any answers for you either for the future. That's he, true. Other than something's coming and we can't stop it. Right. Um, so kind of I'll shift a bit. Uh, for my money, maybe it's because I'm just, I was a nerd in high school or I'm not, I'm not anymore, clearly. Um <laughs> I was always interested in the sci-fi version of this stuff, and we've talked about the arrival already. And I wanted to ask you about Interstellar as maybe oh, a version yeah. of this, but also you mentioned Star Trek and Star Wars earlier, and that too. I was always, you know, there's, you know, whatever, two kinds of people, those arguments, Star Wars, Star Trek people, they both sort of have their, their apocalyptic elements. And what I liked about Star Trek was it seemed to be, we talked aside, we talked in the past about a positive eschatology, something that amazing utopian that can happen with this major shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw Star Trek as some version of that, right? Seeing, you know, it's the next generation. Uh, people are getting along, right? The, the Earth has been saved. We have these other species from other planets, and they're, they're working together, the Vulcans and the humans, and oh, we don't like those Klingons. But eventually they're buddies, right, in the next generation. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of thing. Um, so maybe we want to discuss, too, the ways in which some of those uh, films, the arrival aside, the sci-fi films, mm-hmm. articulate that new society emerging and sort of what 
what we can do with that on an ideological level or what we think is happening there. Sure. Um, I guess to take, <clears throat> to take Star Trek as like a, a version, like I have no experience with any of the TV shows. I mm. never watched the next generation or deep space nine or any mm. of that. Uh, I'm not saying they're not worth watching. They probably mm. are. And I have, you know, comrades who are very mm. much, uh, you know, advocating for them. My experience of star Trek was always the movies, mm-hmm. um, as a kid. And, and I'm not saying they hold up as movies. Maybe they don't. Maybe they do. I, ch- I kind of I tried to rewatch part four, the one with the whales. Yeah, they um, go back in time. They right? go back to 1986 uh, to try and prevent climate change. Uh, right. Which is really, I mean, thinking about that now, like that's they just had taken for granted the world was going to. Yeah. Like the whole premise of Star Trek is the world's going to be on fire because we fucked it to death. And as a result, um, they have to like. They have to go back in. I, I don't remember the whole premise, but like, th- there's a little bit. It's very much almost like a Beverly Hills Cop version of Star Trek. <laughs> right. That one where they're just like they're they don't understand how anything works yeah. and like what these machines are. And, and why what... is this punk rock? Have you given <laughs> Spock the middle finger, etc. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, I need to rewatch it again because that. Anyway, um, but like what I think, what I remember most about the films and. We can just throw the new ones in the garbage. I don't. They, sure. they just kept failing at these new Star Trek movies. Right. I didn't want Agreed. them to, but yeah. you know, um, the first one's a little interesting, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> but the old ones, the the ones from the eighties, what was kind of always looking back, the 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 alliance between Kirk and Spock was is an interesting like, I think it's an interesting vision of what's probably required of uh, a communist a communist society in the sense of like, you know, that, that Stalin quote that Zizek repeats about how when Stalin was asked, who's your ideal, what does your ideal Bolshevik look like? And he's like American pragmatic spirit, a combination of American pragmatic spirit and Russian um, commitment to ideals. Sure. Uh, culturally. <clears throat> and I think that's what you have with, Kirk and Spock. Spock's mm-hmm. very, you know, like formally committed to reason and mm-hmm. that trumps everything and ethics and stuff. And Kirk's like, okay, like what gear, what, what wrenches do we need to turn to not die all right. the time or get killed in this, these battles mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, Even if it's a, a violation of the ethic. Right. Yeah. Um, just to, you know, and, and he, do, he doesn't, Kirk is not opposed to Spock's vision. Right, right. It's just that he has a different, he, he's positioned differently in relation to it in the sense that he's the captain of the ship. So mm-hmm. he's responsible for making everything work. Um, <clears throat> and so I think that's a more, it, it's more modest than a lot of what happens in star Wars, but that's a good thing mm-hmm. because uh, like star Wars is much more liberal in the negative sense of like right. this kind of UNICEF, vision of you know the bad actors are the ones who are committed to ideas like mm-hmm. vader uh and obviously he's, he's, yeah. he's made evil f- and he is evil etc but like you know zizek's given a defense of the sith before like <laughs> that's who he, si- he sides with um <laughs> because they're you know you have again commitment to ideals and, like 
which is his, also his perverse reading of Harry Potter. Like always, he's like me and my son would go to the movies, but we'd always be cheering for Voldemort and stuff like that. <laughs> um, and so I think like the that's the problem with Star Wars. Largely, is it's it's an ability to really. It's always they're always cheating. Like uh, somebody, <laughs> as the, when the new uh, Star Wars, the two thousand what was it fifteen? Then the the new first new one yeah. came out. Um, a Frederick Jameson uh, analysis of it reemerged from the eighties, where he said something like, "It's basically a remake." The the first episode four, the original Star Wars movie, it's a remake of American Graffiti, right. where they're just working on cars right. and like, you know, riding around town and mm-hmm. shit like that. And I thought that was nicely, viciously reductive because I think that's kind of, I I would that's about as much political weight as I'd want to, you know, or credit as I'd want to give it. I think mm-hmm. Star Trek was m- much more concerned with. If we have a society of abundance, it, you know, which maybe we're headed toward, we will be headed towards if we make it that long in terms of like how fake all this scarcity is plus new technology that we know is coming <clears throat> um, in a society of abundance. How do you govern and how do you make decisions about like what constitutes human action and agency and the fact that they're federated mm-hmm. and democratically federated is interesting because it's basically this radical reworking of even understanding nation states or Mm -hmm. races or whatever. Um, And it's very bureaucratic, which is, you know, for Zizek, the key to communism is (laughs) bureaucracy in a positive way. Um, Whereas in star Wars, it's all about kingdoms and there's all this Republic feudalism and like how to him, the Jedi's are these reactionary, like, knights and stuff like that um so you know that's you know come at us about star wars they'll take all comers you can't <laughs> you can't make those you can't prove to me those movies are progressive right even if they ostensibly are paying lip service to it especially then the more that come out the worse they get in terms of now they're just like attempting to be pc for its own sake mm-hmm. uh <clears throat> but can you so i and i'm sure i've missed by not having experience with the next generation, I missed the whole like Patrick Stewart Lennon mm-hmm. thing. Um, so what, what, what's your like take on star, star Trek, the shows or whatever you've been exposed to? Uh, I, I think a lot of what's maybe already been, been mentioned. So I was a diehard next generation guy and watched all those shows. And maybe if we have time, there's, we can throw Battlestar Galactica in here too. The new one. Um, maybe there won't be time, but um, yeah, I, I saw episode, uh, the movie number four, they'll go back in time for the whales in the theater. And again, that's right around the time I was 10 or so years old. Um, and thought it was just fascinating. Didn't have much, uh, connection to the old, the original series, but really got into next generation show and then deep space nine and did, I mean, to your point, all that stuff, um, was just impressed by the vision, the positive vision, the federation, um, that was sort of on display there, basically arguing, science logic and sort of cooperation and rationality and bureaucracy actually saves us right the planet's right. fine technology mm-hmm. will get us there we can there's no scarcity let's explore the galaxy um together mm-hmm. um and i was very interested in that and i 
you know, I've talked before about my sort of Catholic school upbringing and my interest in Marx sort of emerging out of that. I guess now that you have me thinking about it, I don't doubt that I was attracted to that vision and the, the Patrick Stewart version of a leader, probably as a result of some of that upbringing, too. It just seemed, it all seemed uh, of a piece, right? right? It was all connected in one way or another in ways that I liked Star Wars, too, as a kid. Most kids did, but even that just started to wear off pretty quickly um, as I grew up, right? Um, yeah. And so, yeah, and so the, but I agree with you that the newer Star Trek films haven't really stood up. And even some of the later series who started to get, uh, to your point about Star Wars, to get to be a little bit, a little bit uh, PC liberal, not quite as radical, not as interesting. And I'm thinking the Voyager series, and there was another one, I think, but I forget what it was called. The Scott Bakula one, whatever that one was. Um, They were less interesting. Uh, But for a while there, it was, I mean, it was quite, quite a vision of the future um, that was, I think really attractive and I'm kind of kind of was wanting that to be where we ended up, but right. It's not absolutely. looking that way. Yeah. It's you interesting know. about the, I like that you're talking about it was formative. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if I said this, but I, those Star Trek movies were very formative to me. Like it looking back, I can see it now just how um, it, for contingent historical reasons, my recall of my childhood is, imperfect uh well i mean it's it's there are holes in certain ways but we don't have to get into why but as i'm prompted to recall like and i think about how i how i engage politically it it kind of is like of a piece with like it's probably some combination i've tried to combine spock and kirk just Mm -hmm. as understanding like well you have to do to get things done, what's effective, but mm-hmm. also we, you know, what, what, to what end, what ethical master are we right. serving? Um, <clears throat> and that those things have to work, not dialect, not vulgarly dialectic, but I mean, they're, that's the conversation. I think, right. uh, that's, that's how we ought to be making decisions. Um, but oh, what was I going to say about, I'll interrupt yeah. quick and just say that next generation sort of tackled that same problem when they had not only uh, Worf, you know, the Klingon on the ship sort of as the counterpoint to um, Picard, but also the, the robot, right, Android and Data, who is mm-hmm. always just didn't understand human emotion, was completely even more logical or rational than Spock mm-hmm. and unemotional um, and just, um, you know, watching the ways in which the writers had him and a Picard sort of at odds with each other was was pretty interesting for a while there. Okay. Oh, now I remember what I was going to say. Um, yeah. So the reason I, I was glad you brought up the, how formative it was to whatever degree is mm-hmm. because uh, <clears throat> Peter Diamandis, who's one of two guys in Silicon Valley that I like, uh, even though he's, there are things I take issue with. He's a guy with Rick Kurzweil who s- started singularity university. And so their, their ideas to, um, the way that we build the future we want or the way we get to the future we want is we build it and we build it intentionally. And so they're, they're um, proponents of educating people about exponential growth of information technology and what the implications of that are the short term and the long term, and how to organize businesses and um, even like one's own life around these concepts in the sense of like being able to impact a large number of people positively. Um, And he manages to avoid falling into just pure humanitarian like uh word salad honestly Mm -hmm. uh by and i think part of that's because his dad was an immigrant like he made a point about how 
his dad going from this poor Greek family in Greece to becoming a doctor in America is a much like more unlikely and more difficult journey than it will be for him to, you know, uh, mine asteroids right. in space. Right. Um, which I think is a good perspective to take. And his other view is that like when people say like, Oh, that's impossible. He's basically like, fuck that. You don't know that. Right. And he just totally rejects that line of thinking, which is, that's how I am. Mm-hmm. I, I, we, do, we should at least have the humility to say, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Not that humility is the important thing. The important thing is the defiance of that notion. If anybody tells you something's impossible, just ignore it completely. And there was a lot of a lot of that in Captain Picard. I right. remember from the show. Okay, and so yeah, so my the reason I'm tying Diamandis is in, into it is because he, uh, maybe to make the materialist link to you know what does all this have to do with politics and what we do? I mean, I think we made it pretty clear, but. For Diamandis, Gene Roddenberry in the original Star Trek series, that was formative for him. For mm-hmm. him, that showed him what was possible. Right. And that became something to aspire to. Um, and he's helped uh, by establishing the X Prize, like they that uh, what is that medical device, the tricorder or whatever, that oh, yeah. can like just yeah. identify all your diseases. Exactly. He they have he's had a standing uh, um, prize of like $10 million for anybody who can do a tricorder that can, I think from home diagnose some huge number of, or, you know, like a hundred uh, common ailments or something. And mm-hmm. then recently it's been awarded. Wow. So wow. Uh, first for at least part of it. Um, and so like the, the way that we, and, and he's been with singularity university. One of the things they're trying to do is integrate writing sci-fi into how, businesses try to understand new how to develop new technologies that we mm. we need that story to be able to like have something to point to yeah. and recently it's been there unearthed that there's a martin luther king interview where he was pointing at star trek sure and saying this is what we should be aiming at yeah. because look at how you know n- no one is without physically like that this basically solves all our political economic mm-hmm. problems like all the 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 lack of discrimination, their idealism, and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. In practice, we mm-hmm. can see how this this could be a model for future society. So he was, and he was saying that in response to, uh, he was talking to. There's a black woman who was on that show. Uhuru, yeah, yeah. He beat me to the punch. I was going to bring up that scene. And so she, the the idea was, I think somebody asked him about Hollywood or something, and he's like, "This is really important that she's yeah. on the show, and this is why the show is important." Right. So. Even somebody who, you know, was legitimately in the trenches, um, you know, whose life was constantly threatened and ultimately cost him his life to when he started especially talking about capitalism and exploitation and anti-war stuff, um, he saw the 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 importance of having these uh, artistic and philosophical models for something to look at that could be something for us to point to. Right. I was just going to add um, that to your point about that show showing a future that's possible, right? Anything's mm-hmm. possible. We have, um, I, I don't remember this, this specific episode or season, but you know, there was uh, Uhuru, the, this black woman and, and Kirk, uh, like they kissed each other on television, oh, right? Yeah. A black woman and mm-hmm. a white guy. That was probably what he was being. Yeah. Asked I mean, about. just so they, I mean, that sort of vision showing that to the country in, right. in the midst of the civil rights era was just like radical as hell. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and again, just sort of 
undermining people's biases or expectations about where we're going or what what kind of a world we could live in if we just do it. Right. right. So. And there's also, I mean, just as an addendum, um, part of, as, as per my understanding, part of the, <clears throat> as someone had told me, the influence for... The, uh, for Roddenberry from the original Star Trek was he was drawing a lot from Shakespearean mm. stuff too. So there's already this, I mean, it's obvious enough, but there's this classical modernity sure. um, structuring like what all this, you know, so this, I guess in, in defense of the humanities, like if not for us uh, trying to imagine the future, who's, who else is going to do sure. it? And what does that look like? Um, as far as like interstellar, that's another interesting example in terms of like, uh, I it's to me so Interstellar, the Chris Nolan movie. I won't go through all of its pretty involved plot, but basically like they're just <clears throat> um, the Earth is dying, right? Because uh, it's not clear why. That that's where it's a little bit yeah. loose. Um, I assume climate change, but that's not even there's just, clear. Yeah, you're right. But they're just like there's too much nitrogen in the yeah. atmosphere, and they. All the crops are slowly dying off. Our ability to grow them at scale, and basically society as we knew it before has collapsed. And they're in some sort of weird agrarian, feudal kind of situation. Well, not feudal, but like scarce situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matthew McConaughey had once been an astronaut. Magoogaberry had once been an astronaut, um, and he finds himself as in an engineer. He finds himself as a farmer, and he's not happy about that. Um, but due to some strange phenomena that they observe he he's led to nasa's underground secret bunker where they're still operating and they're building a ship to try and go through this wormhole outside of saturn that they have the tech to get humans to from you know decades prior presumably Mm -hmm. and and so in this process like they're they have these problems trying to solve gravity and figure out can they bring humans to this new world, if they can find a new world and there seems to be new worlds available through this wormhole. Um, if that's true, then, you know, they can save humanity. If that's not true, then they have a backup plan and the backup plan is all these frozen embryos that they can populate. They can colonize another planet with, and then the humans survive. Um, and then they go on this sort of space odyssey to meet up with astronauts that had already gone through the hole and they hadn't, they hadn't had much communication back, just including Matt Damon, including Matt Damon, or as I like to call him, Dad Pitt. <laughs> um, and there, it, it's a it's a phenomenal film. I, at first, I didn't like it because the end they they get into all this weird quantum shit, and then it mm-hmm. gets really really stupid mm-hmm. to, for my dollar. Um, but and so I don't. As soon as like. There's a there's a scene where they pass through a black hole and as an attempt to gain quantum information that can be sent back to mm-hmm. transmitted backwards and then they can solve gravity. So it's solve gravity in the sense that I was talking about it um, with arrival. Yeah. Uh, once they pass through that black hole, it gets really stupid. I think it gets becomes this weird family story and right. it doesn't really hold up. I don't think it's it's kind of a strange break, but. Everything up to that is amazing because it's with limited resources and almost no chance of hope or no chance of like victory, I should say. Um, they persist onward up into up to and including Matt Damon um, commandeers. He tries to maroon Sabotage, them. Yeah. He tries to maroon them on this planet that's unlivable, uninhabitable. 
but he was lying to them about that. And <clears throat> he docks onto their spaceship out uh, out in orbit of this planet that he was that he had uh, tried to colonize but couldn't, or tried to, you know, done exploratory stuff, but it didn't work or it wasn't suitable. Um, and he's trying to manually dock the. Um, this is the key moment in the film, as far as I'm concerned. Well, uh, there's all this time slippage because they're too close mm. to a black hole, one of these planets, and every hour they spend on this planet, it's like seven years, and they right. get stuck, and all this shit happens. So they, they lose decades, mm. and then everyone thinks that they were... his kid, McConaughey's kids think he's abandoned them, and they don't know if they're still alive, mm. but in their world, only like a couple hours have passed. Like right. a day, but it's been decades. So... um because of relativity, the close, the, the heavier the gravity is, closer to a black hole, the more time passes out in the outer, you right. know, our normal space. The slower it is for you, the, the subject closer to that black hole. Uh, well, the quicker it is there, the longer it is outside of that. Oh, so sure. back on Earth, right. it's longer. Yeah. A lot of time is passing. Um, so Matt Damon steals the ship. Try he steals one of the. Uh, the, not mothership, the other, like the, the landers flies back up to the space station is locked out of the system. Cause the Android, the AI that was, the AI didn't trust him right. <laughs> with good reason. Yeah. Um, and there was, they have this sort of banter about like how honest you're supposed to be. And they're telling the AI be about 90% honest. And he's like, what's your trust setting at? You know, because <laughs> uh, they locked Matt Damon out of the system and the AI's like apparently a lot lower than yours. Um, so he's trying to dock improperly and he tries to enter, but the airlock's not locked. So he's docked imperfectly and then it blows the side out. Mm-hmm. And then the space station starts coming apart and spinning. And McConaughey's response is not to run, but to go go at the ship. And they're like, what the fuck are you doing? Even the AI's like, what the fuck are you doing? And he's mm-hmm. like, I'm docking. Mm-hmm. And... Or and Hathaway says that, and then the AI's like, "It's impossible." He's like, "No, it's." He's like, "It's not impossible. It's necessary." Mm-hmm. And so they through this like crazy, like they have to get up to like thirty six Gs to match the spin of the thing, and then they, the AI d- is able to dock it, you know, quote unquote manually, and then they're able to get back and send stuff through the black hole and get all this information, and uh, ultimately it f- the. <clears throat> we become a spacefaring society in the subsequent loss of time. Mm-hmm. So, um, <clears throat> but that to me is the, that's the question. If we're facing catastrophe and literally in that case, all of maybe human existence hinges on his decision. Do we press on or do we retreat? And we don't have a choice to press on except to press on, mm-hmm. you know, it's not impossible. It's necessary. I think that should be our motto for mm-hmm. uh, moving into an uncertain, well, at best, a certain future that is dar- increasingly darkening. Sure. The, uh, I mean, by way of wrapping up here, um, at this point, maybe I'll just ask you about one last film that I hadn't thought of in this context until this conversation, which is another Alfonso Cuaron film, uh, which is his, uh, his gravity film, which uh, again, you know, I think about it now uh, as, and it's, it's sort of apocalyptic or eschatological in tone with the, the main character, Miss Congeniality, who's lost a child. Right. And then is just mm-hmm. trying to move on as a, as an astronaut, right. In the sort of explosion of the, 
the uh, International Space Station and just what she has to do by necessity right. to sort of survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's I. <laughs> I saw it in the theater. Mm-hmm. I saw Interstellar in the theater. I shouldn't know. I hated Interstellar the, after the first time I saw it because of that end shit. And then mm-hmm. I, then I started watching it after Trump was elected, and I was watching it like every day for a while. It was just so <laughs> something about it was it's just incredible. Though. Like I just that whole that first two hours was just like amazing. Yeah. Anyway, um, <clears throat> Gravity I saw in the theater and. It was, I mean, it was, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's it's a, it's a full body experience because a lot of like the, the perspective of the camera is this as things are just unraveling around her um, and she keeps being able to somehow solve all these problems uh, to get home. Mm-hmm. The, like it, it's, there's a lot of terror happening. There are moments where she thinks she's, well, she seems doomed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then George Clooney had tried to kind of, he, I can't remember the sequence of events, but basically George Clooney got like, he Didn't fell off for him, or yeah. something and he just was lost in space. But mm-hmm. then she like has this dream where he shows back up somehow right. and like reminds her of how to, um, you know, here's what you can do to like overcome this thing that you think you can't get out of. And mm-hmm. then she eventually makes it back uh, to earth. And there's this, that wonderful scene at the end where she gets out of the ocean and just, you know, slams her foot in the muck, like this primordia of like mm-hmm. it's almost the first human step. Right. Uh, which is pretty amazing. <clears throat> there's an argument that's been, I, I mean, what I think of the movies, I can't watch the movie cause it's too intense again. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, yeah, it's a good question. I hadn't thought about that one as much. There's a there's an argument that's been made that everything that happens after she passes out, that whole George Clooney sequence is just, it's a fantasy and mm-hmm. it's all she's dead. Right. Um. I don't like. I I don't like. If that's really what's going on, it's a little too clever for me. Like, mm-hmm. just I don't. I don't think we need to do that. Uh, as far as like, if that's the message, which I kind of doubt, I think Quarona is more straightforward than that generally. Um, but it, yeah, it, it has a kind obviously similar trajectory of despair and, uh, terror as maybe interstellar does, um, less operatic, more, uh, more kinetic, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I don't dislike it, but I don't think it's I don't think it's apocalyptic in the same way these other sure. ones are. I think yep. a better example would be okay, here's I don't disagree. We don't have time to get into all this, but I have to talk about um what Alien Covenant. Mm-hmm. Uh so Prometheus was great. Mm-hmm. I, as a movie, it's fine. Michael Fassbender, wonderful. Um a lot of people and Danny McBride, uh Alien Covenant. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't oh seen it. I, see, I saw Prometheus. People but... don't people don't like it as much as Prometheus because it's darker. But basically, you have this Michael Fassbender's character in Prometheus. They're you know is sort of by himself for like I think hundreds of years, and it opens with him talking to his creator, and he's asking him like, "What's you know, are, you know, are you God or am I like, what am I for?" and all this stuff, and the creator kind of has this sort of like unseemly dark vision of what he's supposed to become 
Uh, and then another version of Fassbender like comes along with these new explorers who are trying to figure out what happened. And basically what happened is the AI decided uh, to wipe out humanity, (laughs) this planet, and then uh, commandeer the ship after he outwitted them all. And, you mean uh, Fassbender or the AI? Yeah. yeah okay. Well, they're both AI. Oh, I both see. Fassbenders are AIs, but one of them is more human, mm-hmm. uh, freer of constraint. Sure. The one that was left there. So he had, and he's lying to them about what happened and stuff. And, uh, but as a means to propagate the alien species. Sure. So it's like this prequel or whatever to what yeah. happens. And that that's my view is, or not my view, but like I prefer that version in the sense of like (laughs) he sees in us all of this horror that he wants to exterminate and so he just goes and does it and there's all there's wagner playing and he's just like (laughs) on to valhalla like it's kind of like silly but in a dark way um that that's what i i don't think i think that in the same sense that we in this podcast celebrate formal aspects of trump's like ruthlessness ruthlessness and the clownishness mm-hmm. as a perhaps something the left could steal from him. Um, the left should steal from Fassbender's AI the notion that like if we're gonna if we're gonna save humanity, we better be <clears throat> we better be saving it for the right reasons and for and biasing it toward something positive. Otherwise, like we're gonna end up doing right. this again, or, or be and be ruthless in our sort of in our pursuit efforts of it. To, yeah, yeah to pursue that. That's that's saving, um, but so I don't have a whole lot to add, and it's running out of time here. But maybe the last thing I'd say is I watch a lot of these types of films uh, when I get a chance to watch film like Gravity and the intense sort of potentially apocalyptic stuff, Interstellar. And my spouse uh, asks me questions like this: like this is this is intense, you know? This is serious. Why do you what do you get out of this stuff? Why are you interested in these kind of films? Um, and you know, after we watched Gravity together, and my only answer was like. Like I was almost on the verge of tears for whatever reason because it's such an intense experience, good or bad, that film. Um, yeah. And I, my answer was like, this is like this is the only thing that gives me any hope. Right. These kind of films, especially the, I mean, the science fiction versions of them. Like I don't know if I have any hope other than what these directors try to show me. Right. right? And The Arrival is another example. And so that's why I continue to do that stuff in spite of the subtext of Apocalypse embedded in like most of them. Right. Absolutely. Um, it just I feel like that's. <laughs> That's the only way out, right? Right. So. Yeah, that's the view I would I I would basically totally agree with. Um, is that w- unless we? Uh, so there's this Brecht quote about that Zizek had referenced recently about how um, unless we're willing to face evil in if we're not willing to face it in the theater on the stage, then we're going to have to deal with it in reality. Sure. And so the evil. It, at hand is the is Armageddon is the apocalypse mm-hmm. literally you know climate collapse or political you know authoritarianism or whatever. Um, I, it similarly gives me hope in that. I don't even know if it's in a dark way. It's just that through this darkness, it's only when we start to accept that these things could happen that things will start to potentially sure. change. And so that's how we find our way through. I think is this is where we have to start. And just a tiny clarification. You're calling it the arrival. I want to just 
oh. make sure people understand we're talking about Arrival from 2016 because the Arrival was like a really <laughs> that's the Charlie Sheen film, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> okay, it's man. not that. Sh- it's amazing, but it's... in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th- I. That's a that's a good thing. <laughs> but you're right. I'm sorry. I'm confusing the two. Uh, Arrival no, is fine. superior to oh, the Arrival. Right, right. But, well, right. it's just, it's just a different bag of cats or whatever. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think that and. I think we can continue this conversation in another point because obviously there's plenty to discuss. But mm-hmm. yeah, the, it is important to note that I think, like, as a starting point, this is how we begin to think of a new way forward. And so we shouldn't negate the importance of these exercises, at least as an opening, even though we obviously don't have all the answers. Right. Adios. Adios.